of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and tonight we'll take a look at verses 8 through 13, as Paul talks about the value of encouragement. The value of encouragement. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 13. We're still in the introductory material to the book of Romans, and we're slowly moving toward the beginning of the body of the letter, which will occur down in verse 16. The value of encouragement. William Arthur Ward said, Flatter me, and I may not believe you. Criticize me, and I may not like you. Ignore me, and I may not forgive you. Encourage me, and I'll never forget you. Everyone, everyone can use some encouragement now and then. And if the truth be known... Most folks appreciate an encouraging word now rather than then. You might be thinking at this point that a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ ought not to require encouragement, or that the Christian's encouragement comes directly from God, and that it might even be considered a symptom of spiritual weakness to need encouragement from outside of yourself. But in our passage tonight, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 13, Paul makes it clear that he willingly gave encouragement to those that he ministered to, and then he also, get this, he also joyfully received it from those that he ministered to. Yes, God is the ultimate encourager, but very often he uses you and he uses me to be the conduit of his encouragement to our fellow believers. In this passage, we'll see it outlined in, in three major Subpoints. One is that Paul is encouraged himself by the Romans' worldwide testimony for Jesus Christ. We'll see that in verse 8. And then in verses 9 through 10, Paul is encouraged in that he finally might be able to visit the Romans, something he had longed to do. We'll see that in the verses 9 through 10 of chapter 1. And then finally, believers are called upon to encourage one another. And that's in verses 11 through 13. Read along with me as we take a look at this. In verse 8, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far, in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles." In his epistles, Paul's usual pattern is to pass from the salutation to thanksgiving to God for the grace bestowed upon the churches and the individuals to whom Paul was to minister. He follows that custom here. We've just gotten through the salutation or the greeting, and now he thanks God for the Roman believers. There's only one exception to this that I can find, and that's the book of Galatians, where in one six he, instead of saying, I give thanks for the Galatian church, he says, I marvel at how quickly you've abandoned the faith. But we understand what's going on in Galatians because of the context of that letter, and, and that's a whole different circumstance to what was going on in Rome. As far as the Roman church goes, Paul felt concern for the welfare of this church. The faith of the believers in Rome 
had become well known in the few years since that church had been planted. The first word in verse 8 is proton, which is translated first, or it's first of a sequence. It's interesting that Paul here actually doesn't have a second. You know, if you look at your text, it'll say first here, and then there's no point two and three and four. But what he's doing is he's talking about first of a sequence, but without continuing uh, the series. And so it actually should be conveyed something like, let me begin by saying this. Thanksgiving is my first priority. Let me begin this way. So that's how he would translate that first word. Here he thanked God for the Romans through Jesus Christ, who had created access to God. When we talk about our prayer lives, sometimes we, we, we look at it this way. that our, our prayers are directed to God the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not just an arbitrary formula that some bishop somewhere thought up. That's a biblical formula. People uh, from time to time will say, well, why don't we pray to Jesus Christ? And they'll bring up a passage like uh, the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. And he's talking to 11, actually, disciples at that point. Well, I think there's a very limited context to that passage in John because Jesus himself taught us to pray to the Father. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in, ha- who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your name be set apart. May your name be set apart, and may it be special. May your name be revealed. So here he thanked God for the Romans through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one that had created access to God in the first place. you know why we can go to God at all? Do you know why we can go to God in the middle of the night or right before we go to bed and fall asleep about halfway through it? You know how we do that sometimes? you know why we even have that privilege of doing that? It's because we know his son. It's very much like wanting to get into some exclusive restaurant or some exclusive night spot, and you know it's all booked. It's all sold out. But you have somebody that maybe knows the owner, and you come up and you say, well, what time are you going to be there? Because maybe you can get me in. And you walk up to the front door together, and they let that person in, and that person says, hey, this one's with me. And so you get in into a place that might be real exclusive. Do you realize without being with Jesus Christ, you don't get into the Father? I hate to tell you that. If it wasn't for your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not getting in. The only prayer that's getting in is a prayer to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But after that, as believers, you've got to be with him before you're getting in. And so Paul doesn't, doesn't just throw extra words in here when he says that he's thanking his God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Praise, Paul praised Roman Christians for their obedience to God by trusting in Christ in verse 5. Failure to trust Christ is really disobedience to God since he commands everyone to believe in his Son. We see that in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. When he says, I give thanks to my God for you all, the the word mu, or my God, doesn't, of course, signify that he's my God, not your God. That's not what Paul's doing here, but it's simply a way of stressing the intensity of his devotion and his deep personal commitment to God. uh, We ought to say that too. This is my God. It doesn't mean he's not yours. Of course, he's yours too. But we need to, we need to grasp the personal nature of our relationship with God. Because as Christians, we understand that the universe was created by an infinite personal God. An infinite personal God, not just a force. Not like the Star Wars movie that they talked about, may the force be with you. Not an infinite impersonal God, say like maybe the New Agers would, would believe in. And or, or people who would call God the universe with a capital U. We don't believe that. We believe that God's a person, an infinite, perfect person. And that infinite, perfect person 
created this universe. He also created you and me. But the problem is our first original parents sinned. They fell, and everybody since then has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that created a problem. And one of the most wonderful pieces of news in all the universe is that we can have a relationship with that infinite personal creator of the universe because he sent his son to die as our substitute. Because, you see, since that infinite personal creator of the universe is infinitely holy and perfect, he can't have eternal fellowship with beings that aren't eternally holy and perfect. So something had to be done about that. And there's a price to be paid for any wrongdoing, any error in judgment, as we like to soften sin by calling it that. But the Scriptures don't. The Scriptures say that the penalty of sin is death, and we all deserved it. Did you hear Mel Gibson's interview the other night? I thought, with one exception, with one slight exception, and I'm real picky, but with one exception, I thought he did as good as any theologian I could have imagined would have done up there. And one of the things that I thought was beautiful was when they were trying to pin him down as to who crucified Christ. Who caused, did you hear this? Who caused the death of Jesus Christ? And they were wanting him to say either the Jews or the Romans. Now in Acts, the book of Acts tells us that God caused the death of Jesus Christ through the Jews and the Romans. They were actually the agents. The Romans were the agents that, that pounded the nail in. But on a larger theological basis, too, or on a, on a different slant of it, Gibson had it right because he said, I caused the death of Jesus Christ. And you caused the death of Jesus Christ. We are the ones that are culpable for the death of Jesus Christ because of our sin. It's bad news that we were born dead. It's bad news that we were born separated from God because of our sin. But it's good news, according to the book of Romans, good news in the form of a person, Jesus Christ, that we can have the potential of reestablishing that relationship with God that our original parents once had. And that can be done only one way. And that's by grace, through faith, apart from works. By grace, through faith, apart from works. Someone recently had a conversation with me, and, and they, they proposed that salvation was by grace, through faith, plus works. Now, I know that's a very old view. I know that's a view of a lot of people in the world. <coughs> But I have, to ask, I have to ask you, if that's your view, that it's by grace through faith plus works, what is the value of Jesus Christ's work on the cross? If it wasn't quite good enough and you've got to add something to it, something is askew somewhere. I'm not reading the scriptures properly if that's what it says. You see, when we come to Jesus Christ, when we come to God through Jesus Christ, we have to come with empty hands of faith. You can't have something in it. Say, so I've got this amount of good work. I'd like to bring this, and then whatever that doesn't cover, would you, would you, I'll let Christ's death cover for me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, for by grace you have been saved through faith, just trusting God, not of works, so nobody can brag. That's how Paul put it in the book of Ephesians. Uh, John, quoting our Lord Jesus Christ, said, For God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. So I think Mel Gibson was right. I think we're the ones that put him there. And we need to remember that as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ for eternal life, you need to consider that. That you're born with a problem, and it's not a problem that just you have. All of us have it. Had it. Doesn't Anybody that's accepted the free gift of salvation doesn't mean they're any better than anybody else. It just means that, that we've accepted a gift. Just because one accepts a gift doesn't put you up on a platform somewhere. But we do have a relationship with God. Now, that's a positive one rather than a negative one. If you've never heard that before and you want to talk about it afterwards, I'll, I'll be around for about 30 minutes or an hour, so feel free to drop by and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll chat a little bit about that. 
But this is a personal relationship, and that's why Paul calls God my God. I want you to notice, too, that he is grateful when it comes to the Roman church for all of you. He's grateful for all of you, not just some of you. All believers are valuable, uh, are valuable to God, whether they're living lives consistently with their position in Christ or not. Since I stumbled through that, let me say it again. All believers are valuable to God, whether they're living lives consistently with their position in Christ or not. We might think the only believers that, that have any value before God at all if we're going to be proud and arrogant about it, are the ones that are walking in fellowship with Christ on a very consistent basis. That's not what Paul does here. He is grateful for every single soul that has been saved in the city of Rome and in the surrounding areas. He's grateful for them all. And since Paul is reflecting the attitude of Christ in this epistle, we have to also understand that Christ is grateful for them all too. You see, Christ's death on the cross made salvation possible for everyone. He died for the sins of everyone. So why would he want anyone not to accept that? It grieves him when someone dies without accepting the work that he did on the cross. So Paul is grateful for them all. Why is he grateful? He's grateful because your faith, the Romans' faith, is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now Paul is using a little bit of hyperbole here, a little bit of a divine exaggeration. He doesn't mean that everyone in the world, every individual in the world, had heard of the Romans' faith but that all over the known world, the news of the growth of the Christian church in the middle of the imperial capital was big news. See, this wasn't some podunk town out somewhere. Paul's saying everybody in the civilized world now has heard that there is a church right in Nero's backyard. And that's big news. That'd be like finding out there was a Bible study at the White House every morning, which there is. And that's that should be big news. I mean, I'm thrilled to hear something like that. And so that's what Paul is referring to here. The whole world understands that there's a church right in the middle of the Roman capital. I know, I'm one who personally likes Roman history. I've studied it a lot, and I appreciate the Romans. But you need to understand that until way later in their history, the Romans were very virtuous people on one level. But they were very cruel people on another level. And they were very pagan people. And they were not, on, by and large, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the fact that there was a strong church in the middle of the city, right in the middle of Nero's backyard, that was thriving and that their faith was strong, brings delight to the Apostle Paul. Paul makes similar remarks in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, although that's a, that's a country church compared to this one in Rome. So verse 8 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So first, the first thing that brings Paul encouragement in this paragraph is the fact that the Romans, the testimony of the church at Rome was a positive, worldwide testimony for Jesus Christ. And that brings him pleasure. Does it bring you pleasure when you hear of a church in another city? another town, maybe even in our own town, that has a positive testimony for Jesus Christ? Does it bring you pleasure? Or, here's a way to check your carnality, if there is any, do you get a little jealous about that? You know, do, do you wish that, that people were talking about your church instead of that church? Well, if you do, then you don't share the same attitude that the Apostle Paul had. The Apostle Paul was really, really pleased 
And he considered it a source of encouragement for himself that there was a church in Rome that, by the way, he had not planted. It was probably planted by some of his converts. He had not planted this church, but it was thriving and doing well. And he was jazzed about that. Now, in verses 9 through 10, he's got another reason to be encouraged, and that's that he might finally be able to visit Rome. Now, Paul hadn't, again, he hadn't planted this church himself. He had never been to Rome. He didn't know most of these folks, knew a few of them, and we find that out in chapter 16. But by and large, he didn't know the people that went to these, what we think are five house churches in Rome. They were new to him, and he wanted to go and minister to them. So in verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Um, and there should be a comma after that. In the New American Standard, there is there's a pause after verse 9, going on to verse 10, even though it's one sentence. How unceasingly I make mention of you, comma, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. So Paul is encouraged in that he might finally be able to visit the Romans. Paul calls upon God as his witness, because what he says here is going to be a little difficult for them to believe. Here is the Apostle Paul. This, this was the apostle to the Gentiles. And the apostle Paul is telling this church, I pray for you all the time. Almost every time I open my mouth to pray, I pray for you. And if you're just the average Roman believer that's going to one of those five house churches, you might say, he doesn't have time to pray for me. I mean, I don't have time to pray for him every day. And that's just one person. He's praying for us as a group and individually as far as he knows it. The Apostle Paul took the time. And so a little bit of his Jewishness comes out here when he talks about taking an oath as God is my witness. There's nothing wrong with doing that, by the way. In the Sermon on the Mount, God, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. But what Jesus is talking about there is not using an oath to create a falsehood. Not, not, for me not to say, listen, as, as God is my witness, and then tell you something that's really not true. Just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. But Paul's using something that's legitimate here. He's not sinning when he says, as God is my witness. He's just understanding that they're, um, they're going to have a little hard time believing this, but it's the truth. One of the busiest people of the 1500s, the early part of that century, was a man named Martin Luther, who was a monk at a place called Wittenberg in Germany. Martin Luther was a busy man. He had a heavy teaching schedule as well as uh, duties in the, in the monastery in which he lived and taught. That kept him busy all day long. But there's a legend that appears to be true about Luther, at least it's, it occurs in most all of his biographies, that he would get up at 6 o'clock every morning, or 5 o'clock, 5 because his courses started at 6, at 5 every morning, and he would spend that hour in prayer. And one morning, one of his superiors walked by at 4 o'clock and saw the light on, knocked on the door, says, everything okay? said, no, I'm just praying. Uh, he said, why are, you, why are you up at 4 o'clock? He says, I've got a particularly busy day. I've got more to do today. I need to have a longer period of time in prayer. Those who are really walking in fellowship with God will find the time to pray. Because we have to know, you and me both, have to know that in any of our ministries, and every one of you is a minister too, you've got some ministry to another, to another part of the body of Jesus Christ, that part of this body too. None of our ministries are going to be effective at all without the supernatural empowerment of God the Holy Spirit behind us. 
And any ministry that goes forth without a barrage of prayer preceding it is almost doomed to failure. It's almost God's sense of humor if he allows it to succeed. So that's why Luther got up an hour earlier when he had more things to do. And that's why Paul had time to pray for the church at Rome. It was important to him. Now, he claimed to pray for the church at Rome unceasingly. The Greek would indicate that it's frequently, but not necessarily without stopping. It's like when he talks in, uh, to the Thessalonian church and says, pray without ceasing. He doesn't mean you can't eat. You, know, you can't have a conversation with someone else. It's in a, on a very frequent basis. Some people have translated it like a hacking cough, like, like uh, one that, that stays, and, and then you go for a little while, and then it kind of stays again. When I was a little kid, I always knew I would never have trouble finding my father in the grocery store because he had a very unique cough. He still has it to this day. And we may be on another island, be kind of panicking, not be able to locate where he is. And I would just say to my brothers and, and sisters, you know, just be real quiet for just a second. We'll hear him. And sure enough, you can ask him this next time he comes to town. Sure enough, uh, it wouldn't be 30 to 40 seconds, and there would be that very distinctive cough, and we'd go over to that aisle, and, and there he would be. That was a frequent cough. And that's the, the way that this... Uh, Greek word should be translated unceasingly, it should be translated frequently and denotes that not much time elapsed between his prayers for them. These saints were constantly in his thoughts and in his prayers. If we were to subordinate this verse with regard to its Greek clauses, the first phrase would be, for God is my witness, and then subordinate to that, whom I serve in my spirit, which he's saying, with my life I serve God. And then finally, in the ministry of the gospel of his son. It's like a stair-step grammatical structure. What he's saying is, my life is devoted to the spread of the good news about God's son, Jesus Christ. Notice that's the way I put it, the good news about God's son, Jesus Christ, because as Paul's already defined the gospel here, the gospel is essentially about a person, and then also the work that that person did on behalf of mankind. So, in verse 9, Paul is calling on God as his witness that he actually does pray for them quite frequently. There's a comma after the you of verse 9, and then he brings up a, a sub-thought, always in my prayer, making request, if perhaps now, and those are some Greek particles that are all put together showing Paul's in, in the intensity of what he's saying, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. In theology, we have, or in theological circles, particularly New Testament circles, there's this argument that's been, go- that's been going on for the centuries as to whether Paul was correct in going to Jerusalem at this point instead of coming to the church at Rome. This is a passage that tells us that he was willing to subordinate his will to whatever the father the father's will was. Now, he desperately wanted to go to Rome. He also desperately wanted to go to Jerusalem. And if we look at the account in Acts very carefully, we'll see that the Holy Spirit's the one that led him to Jerusalem. It's improper and unbiblical to conclude that Paul was sinning here, as well as being, in my view, absurd <laughs> to think that Paul was sinning here. Now, true, there was a prophet that came to Paul on his way to Jerusalem and said, if you go, they're going to arrest you. And Paul said, I've got to go. He didn't say don't go. He just said, if you go, they're going to arrest you. Well, if Paul considered it to be the will of God at that time for his life to go, then he had to go. So it's my view that Paul is not sinning here, and he's by 
Looking at this verse carefully, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. He's willing to subordinate the timing of this to God's timing. Because that's where it needs to be left. As does as do our decisions as well. If the Lord Jesus Christ on the night before he was crucified, just hours before he was arrested, could kneel in agony in the garden and say, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Then that's what we ought to be able to say too. If he could subordinate his will to the Father's will, and he was every bit as sovereign, he was every bit as much as the boss, as God the Father was, if he could do that, then we've got to be able to do it too. And to the degree that we can't do that is to the degree that we'll be unhappy in our lives. To the degree that we want to have sovereignty over our own lives and say, well, listen, God, I know you made me. I know you saved me. I know I can't lose it, and I'm going to do things my way. You're going to be a very unhappy person. You might think you're going to be happy because you see something out there, and I see something out there that looks awfully tempting. Kind of like Eve saw the, the temptation that she might be able to be like God, knowing good and evil. Looked awfully tempting to her, looked awfully good. Now, she knew that God had told her not to do that, but she took it anyway. And she's not the last one to give in to temptation. She didn't have to do it. Her volition was the deciding factor. But there's something in your life right now, I'm guaranteeing you, that you've got a decision to make as to whether you're going to follow what the will of God is or what you want to do. You know, every time you sin, every time we choose against God, we're choosing my will over his. So when we want to knock Eve for taking that apple or for Adam for taking Eve over God, even though he knew better, even though he was a genius and knew better, we do it every day. All day long, and what sin is, is rebellion against God's right to rule over our lives. That's what it is. And so when we confess that sin to God and get back in fellowship with him, you might want to mention that, if it's appropriate, that, Father, I chose my will over yours, and I did this. Just a, an idea. So he really wanted to come to them. Now, the third thing that he is encouraged about, or he says here, is that believers are called upon to encourage one another. And that's where I want to spend... Uh, the bulk of our time tonight. Believers are called upon to encourage one another. Look at verses 11 through 13. For I long to see you in order that I might impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. We are called upon to be an encouragement to each other. Now, this is not optional. This is a called upon <laughs> phrase. This is a commandment, if you would prefer that I put it that way. I am commanded to be an encouragement to you, not just as a group, but as individuals. And you know what? You are also commanded to be an encouragement to me. But not just that. You're commanded to be an encouragement to the person that's sitting to your right and your left and in front of you and behind you. Whether you like them or not is, is inconsequential. It matters not. You're commanded to be an encouragement. There's so much discouragement going on. Satan would love that. But we're commanded to be encouragers. In verse 11, as Paul had prayed often for the Romans... He often planned to visit them. 
Now, the reason he wanted to come visit them was for fellowship, mutual sharing of things profitable. Now, Paul mentioned his contribution first, and he mentions their contribution last, and he stresses reciprocity in between. When Paul says in verse 11, For I long to see you, and the word long is a, uh, is, is a very intense, passionate word. When I, for I long to see you, in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. Paul is not speaking about giving you, say, like the, the gift of helps, or the gift of pastor-teacher, or uh, the gift of evangelism. That's not what he's talking about here, because the Holy Spirit divvies out those gifts. And they're given, I believe, at the moment of salvation, although there's, there's an allusion in one passage that says sometimes people might get a gift a little bit later than that. But on the whole, we get our gifts at the moment of salvation. He's not talking about that. What he's speaking of is that he has a spiritual gift, and that's as an apostle. It's also as a communicator of divine revelation. And that's what he wants to impart to the Roman church. He wants to be able to teach them. He wants them to be able, first and foremost, to learn more about God because of his visit. That might sound a little proud. You know, I would like to go to the Ukraine so they could learn more about God from me. Well, yeah. If I've, if I've got some information they don't have, it's not my information. It's God's information. Somebody taught me, and I'm going to go teach them. That's not an arrogant or proud attitude. It's one that we ought to have, and that's what Paul is talking about. So the spiritual gift was, was not one specific gift that he had, even necessarily, but it was anything and everything that would be of spiritual benefit to them. I don't know how you picture it, but I hope you don't picture it this way, that the Apostle Paul called a conference when he got to Rome, got those five house churches to, to rent a building somewhere in the Roman Forum. They all met at 8 o'clock. The Roman, uh, Paul taught the Romans a Bible study and then left and went back to his hotel room and then came back out the next night at 8 o'clock and had no interaction with them whatsoever. That's not how it went. When the Apostle Paul went to one of these cities, particularly in Rome, it, teaching was one of the things that he did but he also interacted with them one-on-one. -on -one. It was very, very personal. And if the Apostle Paul could do that, there's, there's no modern-day pastor that ought not to be able to do that too. The Apostle Paul, watch, watch, the Apostle Paul was approachable. Because the Apostle Paul wasn't God. God may be unapproachable and light, inexpressible, full of glory. He might be unapproachable in that way, although he is, because we just said through Jesus Christ we can get in the door and have a conversation with him. Paul was not unapproachable. Paul was an everyday guy, as far as we can tell. An intellect, to be sure, an incredible intellect, to be sure. But when he went there, he didn't just have the Bible study and leave. He became a part of their lives. When I go to some of these other countries, one of the things that I always try to do is I try to, to meet the people that I'm teaching. And one of the one of the times that is dearest to me is actually the time when the conference is over for the night. Because I'll tell you what, you would, it, would, it would warm your heart. It would probably bring tears to your eyes in some cases to see the people that come forward with the issues that they have. And, and perhaps they haven't been able to get the questions answered that they wanted to have answered there. And they've got, they've, they've got lists of stuff they'd like to talk about, mostly personal things. When I was in Ukraine the first time, I, I ran into a man named Sasha. Now, they're all named Sasha. Sasha is the Russian name for Alexander. He was a real special person to me because he got up at 3 o'clock in the morning and came to get me at 4 o'clock in the morning so I could be at the airport by 5 o'clock in the morning. And it was uh, in his rickety car, but he got us there both times that I was in Ukraine. Uh, 
The first time I, the first time I was there, though, after one of the discussions that we had on the subject of, um, I believe it, it might have been ecclesiology. I forgot the first subject that we taught, the study of the church. Um, he, he came through a translator, and it must have been very embarrassing for him, because, but he said, I have a problem through the translator. Well, sir, Sasa, what's your problem? And uh, Margaret, my translator, said, I know what this problem is. We might want to go into the next room for this one. When I first got to Ukraine, I read an article that was in English about the Ukrainian system for uh, Ukrainian women finding husbands, primarily Western husbands. And they've got this set up to where an American man can pay $3,000, go over to Ukraine, be invited to a party with 100 Ukrainian women, and then get to pick three or four of them, which he'll date, supervise. It's not an uh, issue of prostitution or anything. And then he can pick one of them and come back in American Marion. And there are droves and droves of women. Actually, the women pay a small price to be one of the women that can be chosen from. Well, Sasha, my friend and my driver, who had been married for quite a number of years, found out that his wife had chosen to be part of the lottery. And she paid her money, went, and went to the party. American chose her. In Ukraine, you can get a divorce in one week, which they did. And he came back and says, listen, I'm going to America with my new husband. I'm now divorced from you. The problem is, in Ukraine, you, it's not like you can move out and get another apartment. It doesn't work that way. There's no other apartments to get, so they had to stay living together in the same apartment while she was waiting for this American to come and take her back. In the meantime, right before I got there, the American had called her back up and said, listen, hon, I'm... <laughs> I changed, changed my mind. I want to pick door number two instead of door number one. So now she is divorced, living with Sasha, and Sasha wants, he asked me, well, what do I do about that? She wants back, do I take her back? I don't know of a chapter verse for that one. But you know what? You know what? I got to spend some time and talk to him. And we went through all the possibilities of the things, his options. They stayed married, by the way, or they stayed together. They never got remarried, but they're still living in the same place together and working on it. Uh, But when I came back this time, when this man first saw me, he hugged me with tears in his eyes. And this was just a guy that was one of my students over there. But I'm going to guarantee you something. I guarantee you something. He didn't hug me with tears in his eyes because I had taught him about ecclesiology. He was appreciative of that. He hugged me with tears in his eyes because I took the time to talk to him about something that was breaking his heart. That's, just, that's being a source of encouragement. So when Paul says, I came to impart some spiritual gift to you, he's not saying, I just came to teach you about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ramifications of soteriology. He came to be a part of their lives. He came to be a source of encouragement to them. Actually, the verse says he came to impart, impart some spiritual gift in order that you may be established. The Greek word for established, sterizo, sterizo, means to cause someone to become stronger in the sense of more firm and unchanging in attitude or belief. So it's been translated variously to strengthen or to make more firm. That's why he came. Paul never had the attitude, I'm going to come and I'm going to give you this information, and I could care less whether you accept it or not. Take it or leave it, it's your choice. When people wouldn't take it, 
When they left it, it broke Paul's heart. Because this is serious business. This is not just some form of academia. This is life and death stuff. And so when Paul came to a place, he went with the intention of being an encouragement. Now, true, he was an encouragement by what he taught, to be sure. But he was also an encouragement with how he interacted with people. That's the word sterizo, that you may be established, that you may be strengthened, that you may be encouraged, if you will, that you may be made more firm. In verse 12, he says, that is, and he's explaining a little bit more of this process, that is, or he can also, he might even be saying in addition to that, that I may be encouraged together with you, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Kiev's not my favorite place. I'll tell you that right now. But I am so encouraged when I go and meet these students and talk to them and minister to them. It's, it's not a one-way street. I, I'm, certain that they, I'm certain that they receive encouragement by me or, or anybody like me going. It's not just me. But I want to tell you something. I receive encouragement from them, not just from their response. I'm glad that they listen. And, that's, and you encourage me by listening, and that's part of it, but for goodness sakes, that's not all of it. It goes both ways. The Apostle Paul was human. He was one of the greater intellects of his day. And the reason I can say that, and I don't think that's hyperbole, is because he had an incredible Jewish background and an incredible Greek education. And then he had an incredible theological education, too. That, that, that kind of education just didn't come in very many people. His, the president of the seminary he went to, Gamaliel, had that kind of education, too, at least Jewish and Greek. But he didn't have the kind of theological education the Apostle Paul had. But there is there's something about this man, Paul, that that we tend to, to have on in such a different category that we can't even relate to him. Peter, we can relate to him, right? You know, the plugger, not necessarily that bright, makes mistakes all the time, would like to take some stuff back. But Paul's almost this other category of human being that we couldn't even imagine that somebody like these folks could minister to him. I like what John Calvin says about this. Now, John Calvin, I have some disagreements with Calvin about... Uh, some of his views on divine sovereignty and certainly on the perseverance of the saints, the way he presented it. But Calvin was, generally speaking, the greatest exegete of his day. I mean, he, he was brilliant. Luther was the bulldog. Calvin was the scholar. And Calvin himself was quite a big wheel theologically. If we went through history, which we have no right to do really, and made a top ten list. If Calvin's not on your top ten list of all-time theologians, you really don't know a whole lot about theology, even though you might disagree with them. So, so. But this is what Calvin said about this passage. Listen real carefully. It's only two sentences. Note how modestly he, talking about Paul, note how modestly he expresses what he feels by not refusing to sink strengthening from inexperienced believers. He means what he says, too, for there's, None so void of gifts in the church of Christ who cannot in some measure contribute to our spiritual progress. Ill will and pride, however, prevent our deriving such spiritual benefit from one another. Paul says, Luther, I'm sorry, Calvin says, 
that Paul was not such a big shot that he could be ministered to by somebody else. Even the newest believer could give encouragement to the Apostle Paul. Even the newest believer. Verse 13, we should probably interpret the fruit that he hoped to obtain broadly rather than specifically as the fruit of his evangelism among, among them or financial support. When we did the introduction to this, we said that Paul, one of the reasons Paul came to Rome or will eventually come to Rome was to raise support for his trip to Spain. Well, that's not the kind of fruit that he's talking about. He's talking about this mutual encouragement. He came to teach them and to minister to them, and then he would be ministered to by them. And it wasn't just the fact that they took up a love offering for them. That wasn't it. You never know about love offerings anyway. I was in a church in Germany. Cindy and I were there ministering with George Mueller. Uh, I thought that the class that I did, the, the sermon that I did, I thought it went really well until a lady in the back got into it with George, and George was my translator that night, and all I heard was George Bush and Gary Graham. That's the only things that came across in English. He was the guy when Bush was running for president that we executed. He only killed a whole bunch of people. But all over the world, it was, he was a celebrity figure, and this woman was really mad that I was from Texas. She was going to disregard everything I had to say because George Bush was the governor of my state. And George was going at her rapid fire. And uh, it didn't go well. I asked George, would you please let me talk to her, George? She's, she's trying to talk to me, and George said, I'll take care of it. There's a whole other story I'll tell you about that sometime. If you know George, George is very passionate about it, and he didn't, uh, he didn't back down. But what I noticed was that in the beginning, they had taken a love offering up for us. After that, they took it back. <laughs> they did not give it to us. They were hacked off. But, so if Paul's not talking about going to get a love offering, he'd have been happy if he got it or if he didn't. And you better look at it that way. If you're in any kind of ministry, you better say what's say what actually is the truth. So that is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. You see the terms that Paul is using there? He wants to make sure everybody understands it's reciprocal. Paul wasn't too good to be ministered to by anybody that was a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the point. And you ought not to be too good to be ministered to either. The the, the act of someone else encouraging you is something that should be universal. It doesn't matter how spiritually mature you are. So don't ever think, I am so spiritually mature, I need no encouragement by other people. True, God is the ultimate encourager, but he uses people to get the job done most of the time. He brings somebody to you to give you a kind word, to write you a card when you need it, just to pat you on the back, to come sit next to you when nobody else will. One of my greatest friends in the ministry is Someone you've met before, Bob Leitner. Dr. Leitner has, as his ministry outside of the seminary, doing interim pastoring in churches. At one point, he was the interim pastor of a church in Fort Worth. Several years back, a man had gotten a divorce in Minnesota, didn't care for the way he was treated by the judge. You probably remember this. Came down to Fort Worth and shot a judge in Fort Worth, killed him dead on the steps to the courthouse for no particular reason at all, just that he was mad at the judicial system. This, this judge had done nothing whatsoever to deserve that. The judge had a wife and two children, and the murderer had a mother who went to the church that Dr. Leitner was being the interim pastor of. In the meantime, he had left to go to another church. After this whole thing came out, everybody in the church shunned the mother of that man who committed the murder. She didn't commit the murder. 
wasn't her fault. She didn't bring him up to commit the murder either. No, so don't go that way. She was a totally innocent party, and nobody in the church would have anything to do with her, including the pastor. Completely shunned her, would not answer her phone calls. So she called Dr. Leitner up at the seminary and said, hey, listen, could you come and talk to me? Nobody will talk to me. And so he went and encouraged her. Actually, he went and witnessed the execution. The man was a believer in Jesus Christ, was executed, and went to heaven. There are many ways that you can be an encouragement to one another. And I hope that you will use your spiritual imagination to figure out how that might be. And it could be sitting with somebody that has nobody to sit with. It could be taking meals to someone who's laying face down because her eyes can't see for the next six to eight weeks. It could be just patting somebody on the back and saying, hey, listen, I'm praying for you. I know what's going on. I heard what's going on. I'm praying for you. It could be just patting them on the back and not saying a word. I'm going to leave the specifics, the how-tos up to you because you're, the Holy Spirit can come up with the how-tos in a, in a much broader way than I probably could. But consider it. Consider today how you might be a, um, a minister to someone else. In the book of Ephesians, we don't have time to turn there, so just listen for a second. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, uh, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. I'm going to I'm going to turn there, but you can. In Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Now, that's been traditionally taught, don't curse. You know, you remember George Carlin's Big Seven, I'm not saying them tonight. But, but, you know, don't let those words come out of your mouth. Things you can't say on TV, don't let them come out of your mouth. Of course, there's a whole different rule on TV anymore. That's not what this passage is talking about. Now, that, that could be a part of it, to be sure. But it's not just offensive language in that sense. It's, it's malicious gossip. It's slander. It's anything that injures others and sparks dissensions. That's what's covered by that expression. Don't let anything unwholesome come out of your mouth. Satan loves discouraging words and actions. Satan is the great encourager. God is the ultimate encourager, but Satan is the great discourager rather he's a discourager so we need to use what comes out of our mouth to build up something that is good to encourage the confidence of a fellow believer to encourage them in their christian walk and to create goodwill instead of harming others with words believers are to ensure that their language has a beneficial effect on other people human words can be vehicles of divine grace one of the stupidest nursery rhymes I've ever heard in my life is sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is moronic. Words will destroy you. Now, they may not, they may not ought to. That's what we tell our kids if somebody said something bad about them. You know, don't worry about what they say. It can't really hurt you, but it does, and you know it does. And every one of you has had words thrown at you that you hadn't forgot that were very, very damaging. Words can damage incredibly. So instead of harming others with our words, we're to ensure that our language has a beneficial effect on the people that we talk to. Now that requires quite a bit of effort on your part. Divine effort. I mean, effort the Holy Spirit's got to work through you to get this done. But be careful. The ultimate source of all blessing is God himself. But the channel may be human. And even the everyday conversation of Christians... They become a means of grace.
to others. In 1988, the Olympics were in Seoul, Korea, and there was a man named Jim Redman of Great Britain, a 400-meter sprinter. Redman had trained and trained and trained for that event, and it was possible he might even win a medal in the 400-meter dash in Seoul, Korea. Right before he got down into the starting box, he felt incredible pain in the back of his leg, and he had pulled his Achilles tendon. He didn't get to run. After all that training, he didn't get to run. Most people said he wouldn't run again competitively, but he didn't listen to them. And so for the next four years, between 1988 and 1992, Jim trained and trained and trained. He made the British Olympic team for the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain, and entered again into the 400-meter race. Most of you, if you have a memory from the Barcelona Olympics, will remember this. The gun went off. 100 meters into the 400-meter race, Redmond pulls his hamstring. Remember that? It became an international story. He was, I can still picture, he was just in incredible agony as he grabbed the back of his leg. And you know what had to be going through his mind? Oh, no, not again. That's eight years of my life that I devoted to running one race, and I never even got through it the whole time. So something went off in this man. And he decided he was going to finish that race anyway. And you may remember, because the television cameras, the, the race was long over. The television cameras spanned back to Redmond as he's limping along the track in agony. And everybody felt for him. And then a man climbed out of the stands with a baseball hat on and shorts and a T-shirt, who was obviously no athlete, and put his arm around this man and carried him, they went arm in arm, to where he finally finished the race. The man, of course, was his father, and it became an international story of encouragement. I don't know who you're going to have an opportunity to get out of the stands, to get out of your seat and go over and help, but I hope you'll be sensitive to the opportunities when they come up. Are you a source of encouragement to those around you? Are you a source or a channel of God's grace to other people? Or are you a source of discouragement, a channel of Satan's despair to other folks? It's not often that we can say we're neutral. I'd like to say we were. I'm neither. But most of the time, we're one or the other. So it's your choice. And I hope you'll choose be a channel of grace. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to do the things that might not come naturally to us. Help us to help people who aren't that lovely. Help us to help people that aren't our friends, but that are our family, that are our fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Help us to be a source of encouragement to those who need it. Help us to be sensitive through your Holy Spirit so that we might see people that need it and to provide for those needs. And Father, as this is a spiritual exercise, I pray that the Holy Spirit would burn this on our souls and our hearts, that it may be for your name's sake, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.